If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 540. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And, of course, you get great deals on new courses, forthcoming courses. No new courses the rest of the year, but if you're on my email list, you are going to get coupons. And we're in that time of year where we know it's Christmas shopping time. McClanahan Academy always makes a great gift. It's never out of stock. I'm going to give you some discounts. And the thing is, this will be the deepest discount you're going to see ever again, right? So if you're interested in buying any classes... This is the time to do it. You won't see these deep, deep discounts for a coupon unless it's a new class release ever again, right? So um, I, I want to emphasize that. This is it. This is the deepest coupon you're going to ever see again. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com and roll. Also click on that shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Stickers, hats, t-shirts, uh, skins for your electronic device, wall clocks. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. It's it's great. It's a, just a cornucopia of neat things to have with my logo on. And, of course, you can get my books. You can go wherever you buy books. Get those. Uh, get my book. Get a book plate. My autograph on one of my books. Click on, that, click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Share the podcast around. You can donate if you would like at, at that support tab. You can go to anchor.fm. You can donate there to the show if you want to give me a monthly contribution to do the podcast. Whatever you want to do to help Increase audience, help uh, keep the show on by helping contribute financially. All those things do help, and we're all in this together, right? I mean, this is—it's important. Things we've talked about this week: which constitution? I agree, there's two constitutions, but we're not going to learn from the from the Straussians, the Claremont people. We're not going to learn which constitution we need to use. Also. Which conservative heroes, John C. Calhoun or Abraham Lincoln? Who do we want? Well, I mean, I think the choice is very clear. Lincoln wasn't even a conservative, but this is what the this is what the Republicans, this is what the Brett Baer and all these people are trying to push that we have we have to have Lincoln as a hero or Grant as a hero of conservatism. It's just not true. And then today we're going to talk about secession. And um, I've look. I've been around people that have advocated for the United States to have a type of a discussion on secession for a quarter of a century. And it's been something that I've been interested in for a very long time. Uh, And I believe, frankly, that you're only going to get it should the left be more interested in it than the right. And that's because the right is always going to have the baggage. Even when you talk about Calhoun, right? When you talk about, oh, well, then you just want to leave because you want to enslave people. I mean, come on now. This is one of the dumbest arguments we ever hear. But this is what people say. And I'm sure you can probably go online somewhere 
and you can find somebody out there that's going to say, you know what you do bring bring back slavery. You're going to you're going to see it, okay? And that person might call themselves a conservative and there you go. There's the example. But I'll tell you that uh, these I mean, 99.9999999999, however far out you want to go, percent of conservatives are not going to say they want to bring back slavery. I like you could you could find some, I'm sure, you know, some one by one guy somewhere. You, same thing with Jim Crow. You're just doing it because you want to bring back legal segregation. Well, what is the left actually doing? To, I mean, frankly, uh, and what are the what is all these mandates? You're going to have these classes of people based on a vaccine status. I mean, what is that? We're going to have all that. So who's really interested in segregation in America? It certainly isn't the right. But the left is. They want to have their own little safe spaces, their own little groups, I mean, own little things. They want to do this, but the right can't do this. You can't have it if it's based on anything we don't agree with, right? So, But who really wants to bring back these things in America? Well, it's obviously the left. right? So all these arguments are stupid, but it's all done for emotional reason. This is why the right is trying to run away from Calhoun. It's just stupid. It's not going to work, but it's what they want to do. Equality is conservative. Again, stupid. It's not going to work, but it's what they're trying to do. So I've been interested in this topic for a long time because I've seen that there really isn't any coming back from a lot of this stuff. The empire is starting to crumble. And it's starting to crumble because of culture. And I used to never be interested in this. Let me say this. I was always interested in economics and political. But at the basis of all of that is culture. So I used to you know, be one of these people make fun of cultural historians. I don't want to read about what you know, kind of, and th- th- what kind of uh, you know, clothes people wore, things like that. Now there is that kind of cultural history, where we talk about uh, the everyday aspects of culture. I didn't, I didn't want to read about that stuff. I want to read about the political battles and the economic stuff. But all of those things actually do matter. And I, one of the best books ever written in American history. I'm talking about all time is David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. Because he does get into all of these different things about culture. And it's all interesting stuff, how people named their kids, how people married, how people ate, what kind of food did they eat. All these things matter. I started realizing how much this stuff really matters. It still matters. Think about the caricature of people in the South. All they do is eat nasty food. They eat a bunch of fried food. They eat a bunch of bad food. And they get overweight. And they do all these bad things. You see, these are cultural critiques. That's what they are. They're cultural critiques. They're not, they're not anything but that. It's one person saying to another, your culture is stupid and it's bad. And all these people that preached, I mean, you see the, 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 uh, the cars. I mean, you get this uh, where you have this image of the leftists that ride around their Prius with 8 million bumper stickers on the back, and it's all about tolerance and coexists and all this kind of stuff, and yet they're the most intolerant people in America. It's the stereotypical thing. you know. But, uh, but that's culture, right? And it matters. And as you go to different parts of the United States and you, and you meet people from different parts of the United States, and, this, and for those of you that not, not listen to this podcast in the United States, this podcast is global. Right? I mean, people listen to this from all over the world. I see the data. You have it there, too. You have it. doesn't matter where you are. This, this is a timeless principle. You have culture that matters. And the best thing we can always do for that is to recognize that culture matters and that live and let live is a better thing 
than, than cultural imperialism, imposing your culture on someone else. Now, if they want to come along and they want to say, yeah, I like this, let me, let me be this. And we see this. I mean, the South has always been very open about that. Come on down to the South, but you, you're, you're going to drop your Yankee ways at the border, right? You need to come and be a Southerner. Don't be a Yankee in the South. And we have a lot of Yankees in the South. We do, right? So we're going to drop it. This is the thing. Don't do all that stuff. So all this cultural stuff matters. And we can start saying we need to form alliances based on ideas, ideology. Well, okay. But at the end of the day, you know what's going to happen in that? And I firmly believe this. You can get two people that have the same ideas, but yet their cultures are different and their cultures clash and they're not going to get along because they do things differently. And you're going to look at that other person and how they do stuff, and you're going to be, oh, I don't know why they do that. Now, you might still be friendly with that person. You're going to have a similar worldview, but ultimately, you're going to have clashes. So where you are and where you're from and all those things, all that matters. It all matters. It's hard to get away from those things. And so this piece I want to read today is by... Uh, Dave Rayaboy, and um, he is a Claremont guy. I mean, he's a, he's a Claremont fellow, I believe, or a Claremont scholar. I don't know what they what he's called, but I wouldn't want to arm wrestle the guy. He's he's uh, certainly interested in weightlifting, um, and he he has been you know pretty prominent on uh, talk shows and other things. He's very good friends with Michael Malice. He's also friends with Jesse Kelly, and he says here, Michael Anton, which is funny to me because, you know, he says at the beginning, for the last several years, I've been among a handful of commenters, or commentators, I should say, talking about the possibility or desirability of national divorce, the political separation of blue and red America, or to get more specific and inflammatory, the breakup or dissolution of the United States. He says this week, which is, this is now a couple of weeks old, my friend Carol uh, Markovitz has written a typically thoughtful piece on the subject at the New York Post and concludes that as much as many people long for some kind of separation that would solve many of the real problems of America's current disunion, it's not a solution that's currently feasible. Now, here's the thing I will say about that. I actually agree. I don't think uh, secession or separation can happen now, and for a variety of reasons. I think some of them are political, some of them are economic, I think some of them are cultural. Number one, Americans are not independent enough today to do it at all. We're too tied into everything. And the states are on a federal cash drip that they don't want to get off of. This is the real issue with the states. The states need federal cash. At least they think they need federal cash. And the federal government has involved itself in so many different areas. And I actually had a, a listener... He's from California, email me about this and say, well, look, it's never going to happen. And I, I don't fundamentally disagree that there are some real problems here. And I've said this before on this show. Look, yeah, I mean, the states really are going to have to get serious about breaking free from the federal government. And they're going to have to get serious about telling the federal government no. And we're going to have to have some type of legal mechanism or some people in place because people are going to get sued. It's going to be, this gets where all the federal court system is the biggest problem because we think everything has to be cited in federal court. So you got to have judges on the bench that would say, you know what, this isn't even, I have no, there's no standing here. This federal law is completely unconstitutional. There's no standing to even sue on this case. This is a state issue. 
This individual brought up things like the Americans with Disabilities Act. You got to have 18,000 handicapped parking spaces right up front, and you got to follow all the federal rules and regulations, then the state rules and regulations. And there was a, a book uh, written a few years ago. I, I, I uh, reviewed it here on the podcast, but it talks about all the layers of federal and state law and how all these the, the, the federal laws are redundant. The states already had a lot of this stuff, but you got to have all these rules and regulations. And that makes it very difficult to break free. There's no question about it. Then you take into account that people really aren't independent anymore. They're, they're tied into to all kinds of things in society, and they, they don't have that independent spirit. You know, when, when you look at 1860 and 61, Southerners just went home. They, most of them weren't tied in to some type of dependent on something for the federal government. Now, you look at Southern planters, and this is why some, some large Southern planters opposed secession, because they knew it could hurt their bottom line. They were tied into the economy in some ways. I mean, but the small farmer, yeah, he didn't care. He's going to sell his product wherever. He's going to have the same thing. It doesn't matter. So all these things are real issues. I agree. And I don't think and just people in general are not ready for this. They don't want it. They're not ready for it. No, you're seeing larger and larger numbers, which I find encouraging because people are actually starting to think about these things now. It's not just some thing out there that they don't, they don't think about. He continues, as with any breakup or divorce, even if we had a popular consensus for a national divorce in principle, there are all kinds of details and massive, very thorny ones, like who gets which territories, populations, industries, or nuclear weapons caches that could cause tumultuous and potentially violent negotiations. All these points of contention are very real and shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. They're not going anywhere. The seriousness of these issues and their daunting solutions are meant to prove that the breakup of the United States will always be an impossibility. But he says that's not right. He says it's not right. I mean, well, yeah, we're going to have all these things so it can't happen. It could happen, but you got to change the way people think about things. That's why I do what I do on this particular podcast. you got to change the way people think about things and how you live and how you think about American society. That's important. That's important. National divorce or some other more tragic and chaotic outcome won't be impossible forever, despite heaping dollops of patriotic propaganda, which admittedly, is essentially is essential. I'm sorry to maintain maintenance of the citizens' faith in the regime. One day, the United States will end. History teaches us that regimes, like all human creations, rise and fall, and world-bestriding empires fall harder, faster, and more surely than that. Admitting this is a possibility isn't as accurate as understanding it is a certainty. Yes, the timeline is hazy, but it's coming. This is true, right? So, I mean, the British Empire fell apart. Great Britain didn't die, but the empire fell apart. So. Is the United States an empire over a, over a vast, does it have a vast continental empire? Is the United States Washington, D.C., and then it's added all this other stuff, will that essentially fall apart eventually? We know Jefferson thought it could. We thought we'd have several republics in North America, and they would just all be sister republics. They would all be tied in together, and they'd all be uh, because they had the same commitment to liberty, for example, that they would all be uh, in unison with each other, but yet they would all be different. And as one, of the, as one approaches the crisis and contempt between Americans, builds beyond what is currently unimaginable. Those thorny points of contention, heretofore enough to reduce national divorce to a laugh line, becomes real ob- objects of debate and deliberative thought. There is a price, for example, at which the hard work of pulling oil from the ground in a place is so prohibitively expensive, even discussing it seems foolish. However, when circumstances change, maybe global supply wanes and prices rise dramatically, 
Areas believed to be too costly for drilling suddenly become feasible. These people are saying that they're against that. They're worried about these split-off scenarios. Rather than making a, a Lincolnian defense of union, he's saying they don't really do it. They're not even relying on that. So, I mean, look, I think Rayboy, Rayboy understands that Lincoln can't really be your base here. Lincoln can't really be your base. But you have people that would argue on the right. I mean, they do bring up Lincoln. I think sometimes they often do. But um, more or less to say the union can't be dissolved. That's it. Of course, appeals to boomer patriotism still exist, but I'm not sure that kind of, if that kind of thing gets very many people going anymore. As a generation recedes from its long reign of the nation's political and cultural life, to be replaced by a more combative cohort weaned on civilizational exhaustion and a sense of impending collapse, we'll see even less. I think this says a lot about where we are, what time it is, and how nearly all of us who follow political and social life in America have a kind of understanding that there's no way back from our state of disunion. Well, there might be small valves like presidential or congressional elections to temporarily alleviate some of the pressure and sense of impending conflict, the issues on which we disagree are too profound and foundational to ever just recede into the background. And I agree with him on this, right? This has been the case for a very long time. In fact, it was the case in 1860 and 61. We forestalled what's happening now. Lincoln forestalled the inevitable. And you could actually go back to, Go to Governor Morris in 1787 and when he says, look, if we're that divided, let's get out now. The Constitution forestalled the inevitable. It was already there. This is why the Constitution, in some ways, is a dangerous cover for what actually needed to happen in 1787, which was we kept a very loose confederation of states. In Closing of the American Mind, Alan Bloom made a very elegant and convincing case that above all other forces in human life, ideas matter most. I thought about Bloom a lot as I spent the last several years writing, tweeting, and speaking about the big things tearing America apart. As I've argued, the differences between red and blue America are far deeper than any issues we interact with on the surface. They're essentially pre-political, at least in the sense of very temporal, issue-based, hot-button nonsense we consider politics today. What are they? He's basically saying they're, they're cultural. We have cultural differences that cannot be overcome. And, I mean, I, he, he's on it. He's right about this. The political philosophers, however, would say that the issues dividing us are absolutely political in the original and most elemental sense. We have in America today what are essentially two competing, radically different, and mutually exclusive concepts of the good, of justice, and of the proper role of the state in its interactions with the citizens. That is also true. I mean, to an extent, you have a Lincolnian vision of America and you have a Jeffersonian vision of America. This is what Don Livingston would say. But, um, and how the state is used in these things. But at the core of all that certainly is, though, something cultural. Over the last decade, especially, we've seen how these conceptions expand with great intensity and speed into areas that were once relatively apolitical and would have perplexed our grandparents, like the reality of human biology. As time goes on, even more of reality itself will become a battleground. If we disagree on these big things, which will necessarily manifest in every political issue, large or small, what strong force could possibly reunite us? Or to ask a question that's perhaps more pertinent, maybe not today or tomorrow, but soon, what force could keep us from coming apart? 
well, it would be military force. It'd have to be that. I mean, this is what Lincoln did, right? Use the army. The most prospective observers of America have known that this was always a perilous position for a large multi-ethnic ideological or propositional constitutional state. But see, again, we're not ideological. We're not propositional. As time goes on and the ideology on which the legitimacy of the state rests necessarily changes or becomes contentious between large segments of the population, what's left around which the great majority of citizens can rally? Not ethnicity or religion, those are true strong identity conceptions that have the power to unite people in smaller, less diverse states. Not patriotism emerging from a reverence for the nation's history and heroic founding story either. The left has worked with great zeal to undermine all these things because it wants to unite Americans under nothing but its own ideology. The 1619 Project is the mo- only the most successful high-profile effort to undermine the legitimacy, and even more importantly, the virtue and goodness of the American regime and its founding. It, along with related cults like critical race theory, forms a political ethos that has thoroughly consumed blue America. As the late Angelo Cotavella wrote, these differences amount to nothing less than a cold civil war, and the primary role of the responsible statesman is to prevent it from going hot. Cotavella's answer was federalism, but the great man was wise enough to know that by itself our old conception of federalism was no longer a reasonable or viable answer. True. Right? I mean, federalism was supposed to be the thing that could hold all these discordant things together. You had New England, which still had state-established churches, contrasted with Virginia, for example, which had disestablished a church and created a statute for religious freedom. These were things that were supposed to be left to the states. But when you centralize all power, you can't do that anymore. For more than a century, progressives have, de- have dedicated themselves to abolishing the legitimacy of federalism and then reconstituting the federal government and the courts in order to make its application and practice all but impossible. Over time, as their fanaticism grew, the left's position hardened from the mere undesirability of local differences in state sovereignty to the illegitimacy, unjustness, and unfathomable evil of such an arrangement. Again, very true. In order to return to a time of relative public consensus with these things, one side must impose its will on the other, While Red America isn't really interested in imposing its will on Blue America, it's clear that the reverse is emphatically not true. And again, this is why I say the left has to come around to this. Now, there was a listener that sent me something that maybe I'll talk about next week, I don't know, um, about this. And there's a strain in American conservatism that we have. Look, if the left is going to do this, we should do it too. And we we should advocate things like a monarchy. We should just impose our will and just abuse them. This is why I say you have to persuade the left to support secession and decentralization, that it makes the most sense for them. This is why Thomas Naylor, who's now dead in the Second Vermont Republic, was very important, or Kirk Sale, or the California California Republic, the California secession movement. This is why these people are important, because I think the only way it happens is for the left to wake up and figure out that they can't always win, and if they want their little socialist utopias, they're going to have to have them at the state level. In a famous 1964 speech, Ronald Reagan said about last century's Cold War, there is only one guaranteed way you can have peace. You can have it in the next next second, surrender. This might be the unstated solution preferred by uh, by the mainstream right uh, commentariat, but is this the best we can do? Because it's not just over the horizon of what we can imagine from our vantage point. National divorce isn't all but an immediate action plan, or at least I don't see it as such. 
Rather, it is a rhetorical strategy to prepare the ground for crucial discussions about what comes next in America, as the country grows even more divided, bitter, and angry. More than anything else, it is a reminder for Red America to think about economic and cultural autonomy for itself and what it would take to get there. Anatomy, I'm sorry, autonomy for Red America is of crucial importance, regardless of the status of political or real separation. It is the ability for Americans to be self-sufficient from the financial, educational, and cultural institutions that are hostile to its beliefs and way of life and make reconciliation increasingly impossible. So this is where he's saying, look, think locally, act locally, right? I mean, this is what I've been saying now for years on this podcast. I'm glad that people are starting to wake up and see this. Someone like Rhea Boy, who has a pretty loud voice, is starting to say these things. I don't care who gets credit for it, right? But this is what I've been talking about for a very long time. And why I think it's important that we have, why I highlight pieces like this, because, hey, it might give you some hope. There's people out there talking about the same stuff, and maybe we could come up with a solution. If more and more people talk about this, if more and more people are thinking locally, acting locally, well, that's going to be a good thing long term. All right. So I wanted to talk about this piece and get back into this again and where we are and how we should not have a Lincolnian discussion of secession. And, and that, that's the antithesis of the founding. What we really need to talk about is the founding discussion of secession and how important it was to them and how they thought independence was above all and because it was going to preserve their ancient constitutions. All right. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. (laughs) 